Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 78. The Mice Guy. Welcome to episode 78 of the One Player Podcast. Um, another really interesting show. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, you're going to get to hear an interview with Jerry Hawthorne, designer of Mice and Mystics and a few other games. And then we're going to review the game Mice and Mystics. Oh, and my co-host is here. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Doing well. Glad to be back on the show. <laughs> All right, so let, let's j- jump into the news. All right, so first up on the news, there last week, was it last week? A couple weeks ago, we covered the game Mage Knight, the board game, and now they've announced a new expansion for it called Shades of Tesla. This uh, brings a new playable druid character, and it's expected really soon, actually, in July 2015. It's a small expansion retailing for about twenty nine ninety nine US. Well, I know that Paul Grogan has been discussing a bunch about this over on his podcast. I know that he's talked about how they wanted this character to be more versatile because he sort of talks with the animals. So his skills will really uh, bring a lot of versatility to it as as you bring in other animals and sort of borrow their powers. So this this character focuses a lot on the versatility as opposed to focusing on something like hiring units. Okay, so that sounds really different from the normal characters. I also know, I believe that this also comes with a couple other things, uh, faction leader dials and some new faction tokens, so there's a whole new uh, faction um, mechanic that's going to be coming into play for this one. Cool, okay, so it's getting a lot of, a lot of replayability to a game that has a ton of replayability. Mm-hmm. Neat. Yeah, bringing, bringing in that new faction idea would potentially be interesting. Next up, Kenny, the role-playing sage, which I interviewed uh, about a year ago on the podcast regarding solo role-playing. He has a discount available for his solo role-playing guide going through the end of this month. It's available through DriveThruRPG or RPG Now, and we'll provide the link. All right, so the the guide to role-playing alone is discounted at $0.97 with this price, which is uh, 60% off. It's only $1.47. So check it out. So there's a solo role-playing tool that's now available through DriveThruRPG. They're calling it the CRGE, which stands for Conjectural Role-Playing GM Emulator. The idea is this, the idea of this is it, it just, let me just quote them. It adds the unexpected to your imagination that when you're working on a solo RPG, it's all tied up with what it is that you can think of what it is that the scenario gives you. With this one, the whole system here works by just asking you a tiered set of questions, all of which are just simply yes or no, which can drive the story towards some end goal and not just simply stick you in your own rut of what it is that you expect. It, it'll force into the story something unexpected that you have to react with, which allows it to sort of emulate the idea of playing with a real GM who will throw something at you that you didn't expect, will throw something at you that you have to react to. So this emulator works by adding the unexpected, adding a robot GM almost to create something unexpected as you're playing through a role-playing game by by yourself. Okay, this sounds interesting. This sounds similar to to Mythic GM emulator. At least, maybe not in the way it works exactly, but at least the idea behind it. I have purchased this. I look forward to trying it and hopefully talking about it in a future show. You say you purchased it. It actually doesn't say on the website that it's free? It is. It's pay what you want. So you could get it for free. If you want to donate some money, you could donate as much as you like. The suggested price is $5. But it's a 
a guilt guiltless pay what you want option. So you can also feel free to try it, and if you like it, pay for it. If you don't, don't. There's a new solo podcast that's out. If you saw this going around to the guild, then you're probably as excited as I am. Donnie, Sean, and Travis have started up a new podcast called the Low Player Count Podcast. And they're focusing on games and topics about games for either one or two players. They're expanding a little bit outside the just solo games idea. That's also good. And they're making a whole new podcast. They've already got up one episode, and it's over on lowplayercount.com where their first episode is a getting-to-know-you episode. Everyone gets to chat about who they are, why they're starting this podcast, what it is that they want, and their favorite games. I know that there were definitely quite a number of mentions, some of them like Dawn of the Zeds, Bora Bora, um, Twilight Struggle. They very much are very focused on things that you can play two-player and things that you can play solo, and I think they nailed it. The episode was very good. I enjoyed listening to it. It's excellent sound quality. There's a little bit of an echo, but otherwise it's really good sound quality, and the guys are great to listen to. They have quite a uh, friendly chatter to them. It's a very good podcast, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I do too. I I listened to it, and I really enjoyed it, so I'm looking forward to hearing more. So that's the Low Player Count podcast, and they're at lowplayercount.com. Next up, the One Player Guilds, One Player Awards are now going on. You can go ahead and nominate your favorite solitaire games through the end of April 14th. Now, there's a few different categories you could nominate for. The, you could vote for the Best Solitaire Game of 2014, the Best Solitaire Variant, the Best Solo Expansion, the Best Multiplayer Game that's played Solitaire. So this is a game uh, designed for two or more, where you actually could have fun playing it solo. The Best Solo Print and Play Game, and then there's also Hall of Fames for the Best Game, the Best Game Designers, and the Best BGG Users. I know that once these have concluded and the nominations have all been voted on and we've arrived at the best solitaire game, the, the best solitaire game and the other awards, we will cover them on the podcast and also probably give our opinions on what we think the best solitaire games of 2014 are. That's right. That's a great idea. Now the, I mentioned already, we're currently in the nomination period. That ends April 14th, which is probably after you hear this show, uh, or before you hear this show. You have heard this show after April 14th is what I'm thinking. Well, this show is hopefully going to be published on April 13th, so if you're just hearing the show on April 13th, you got a little bit more time to nominate. Otherwise, hopefully you're a member of the Guild and you saw it there. You still can vote on the nominated games through the 21st of April, so think games who have nominated, you can sum them up if you like them. The games that have the most nominations will end up going into the final round, I guess, of voting, which should begin on the 22nd or around there, and they will be over for two weeks. And so that'll be the point where you actually vote for the best game of the year. So check those out. There's a lot of really interesting games and some fun discussion going on in the in the nomination threads. And I should mention, if you want to participate in it, just go to the One Player Guild, check the Guild's description page, and you'll see a section for the uh, gaming awards with all the categories listed there and the links to the geek lists for them. All right. BGG user Greg Wajda has started a new blog, called Cardboard Crusader, a solitaire gaming blog. And he's been working on this for a few months, actually. Uh, I have talked to him about it in the past, and uh, he's been planning on it and writing articles and trying to slowly build up the content. It is now available and live, um, though hasn't really advertised it much yet. It's got a few articles in there. Uh, check it out. Definitely subscribe. They're very interesting, and um, I think that the more followers he gets, the more he'll publish. 
The uh, the link is cardboardcrusader.com. So first up, Kickstarter they're talking about. We talked about this last time. It's post-human. And I'd said I was going to try and contact the designers, and I did contact the designers. So in post-human, like I discussed last time, you are survivors in a um, war-torn, I suppose, future, an apocalyptic future, where there's a lot of zombies out there, mutants out there, all of them with scars attempting to, in many situations, attack you and kill you. The human players in the game, in a normal game, are playing to reach the fortress. And sometimes those human players in a multiplayer game will get converted to mutants, and then they'll be on the bad side against it. When you're playing solo, the game just simply plays that you have a certain amount of turns, and you can change the amount of turns based upon how difficult you want the game to be, and it becomes a race to get to the fortress. Or you can play it that... You're not limited on how many turns you want, but you have to beat your own high score and get to the fortress in however many turns it is that you can and keep going faster and faster to see how few turns you can do. Sometimes that will depend on the luck of the draw because throughout the course of the game, you'll be pulling out encounters as you march up. Now you have to get those encounters in order to march up. Every time you pass an encounter, you get to march one step closer to the fortress. But sometimes those encounters can be very difficult. Sometimes they can't, and you sort of have to gauge it upon how well you're equipped and how well you can deal with a problem. It's not luck-based. It's still strategic because you're challenged to build up your character so that you can deal with the situations that occur from the cards. And as you move through the encounter deck, so the encounters will get harder, so you'll have to continue building, and then finally you'll get to the fortress, and you'll already be at the third level encounter by that point in time, which are going to be some very difficult encounters. So one of the things that I liked about this game, it does come, the, the core box is $52. So it's not an inexpensive game. Um, but one of the reasons why it's an expensive game is because it comes with a lot of nice uh, custom dice. Each one of your um, stats comes with a custom die for it. So it comes with some custom melee dice, some custom melee dice, excuse me, some custom shooting dice and some custom defense dice. And so being able to roll with those, I personally, I'm just a sucker for custom custom dice, one of the reasons why we'll probably get Nations the Dice game as soon as it comes out. But, yeah, so these custom dice make the game look very nice, and I think that it definitely adds something to be able to use custom dice in this game. All right, here we go. Cave Pilot 55, another Kickstarter project currently ongoing, and this one's going to be going until April 29th. This one is, well, you might think it's the bat plane, but it's not. It's a steampunk version game where you are aeronauts racing bat planes, not a bat plane, just regular old bat planes, through a cave. Not a bat cave, <laughs> just a regular old cave. Um, racing planes through a cave. Now then, throughout the course of the game, you actually get to play the caves down. So you'll have in your hand a set of cave cards, and each one of them have different traps. There's a giant laser beam, there's heat-seeking missiles, there's crystals, there's lasers, there's mines. And each one of them has different traps and things for you have to deal with. And as you're running through the cave, you'll get to you'll have to deal with them. You can deal with them by boosting, by launch by trying to redirect them toward the other players by bouncing up and down. And you're playing both a top cave card and a bottom cave card. So each turn, you'll have a choice. Do you want to play a, a top cave card, a bottom cave card? Which one of your cards do you play? And where should you fly? Do you want to try flying towards the top or the bottom? Like sometimes, 
as you're flying through it, you can purposely try and trigger missiles because the missiles will attack everything within a certain range. And you'll be able to use the missiles and, or excuse me, not, yeah, it is missiles. Sorry, there's both, there's missiles in caves and missiles also on the ships, excuse me. But there's some missiles on the ships and so that'll, that'll trigger and it'll attack everyone. So sometimes you'll purposely want to trigger these just to try and mess with your opponents even though you'll get damaged. Other times you'll want to try and fly up above the cave height at the top part or underneath to try and avoid ones. A very neat looking tactical game. I like the art on it too. The art on it is this uh, steampunky type art which mixes the nice dark clash and also has a lot of these interesting uh, cave points laid out through it. I like the art of it. I like the look of it. So the game is uh, being shipped out from the Euros, so it's about $37 based upon the exchange rate to get it. And then I'll get the core box and all the stretch goals, which will include new cave materials, new upgrade types, um, and it also comes with a set of player mats. An interesting-looking game. And if you're interested in that, go ahead and take a look at it. Yeah, this one looks really nice. I like some of the the promo packs because you can do it one point in time. You have uh, animals, prehistoric animals and coming in. So you have these uh, um, flying creatures come again. You can have lava come again. I, I like the look of a lot of these. It looks neat. Yeah, it does. And the idea sure sounds very uh, unique. So it reminds me, I, I should say, of... Um Robinson Crusoe, where you're sort of forced to make a choice. Seems like each turn you're moving forward one space along the path, and you got to choose if you're going high or low that turn. So, sort of choosing the lesser mm-hmm. of two evils, maybe. Sometimes, yeah. Or sometimes you're trying to set it up so that you trigger yeah. <laughs> an evil for everyone else. All right, what's next? Orcs must die. The board game. Orcs must die. <laughs> Usually when I'm drafting the one-player podcast Kickstarter report, which is available on our website, I try and quote the one single line that they use, just because usually that line is a very nice, quick summary of it, and I figure if the creator has decided that's a good summary, I may as well decide it's a quick summary also. For Orcs Must Die, their only summary are, buy our game, Orcs Must Die, after all. (laughs) Doesn't really tell you anything about the game, but that's what it is. Orcs Must Die is a cooperative game, um, which does play solo mode. If you like tower defense games with a little bit of strategy to it, then you'd probably be interested in this one. You'll For this game, you'll set up a map, which is just a set of tiles about where it is that the orcs will march along. And the orcs will come out in waves, and they'll continue marching across the board. And you'll have to trigger traps and use items to, I, well, kill the orcs. <laughs> And you have your own unique sheet, and so you'll have some special characteristics about things that you can use to attack them and knock them back um, as you're moving through it and fighting off the orcs. And you'll also have access to a different set of traps and triggers that you can use to also kill off the orcs. And the goal of the game is to prevent the orcs from overrunning your uh, overrunning your fortress, your stronghold, which is currently under siege. Again, this one also comes with a bunch of custom dice. comes with custom dice for health, lightning, arcane, frost, fire, and battle. Each one of them is completely custom and does completely different things based upon the fact that each one of these effects does something different. So if an enemy attacks you with lightning so that they may move faster, they may damage you, they may do regular damage, each one of them does something different, which allows each of the enemies 
to be very unique because it's a random die roll and you'll have to look it up on any tables to figure what it is that they do. You can look at the random die roll to see what it is. So that makes the enemies, makes the enemies pretty unique. It also makes your reactions very unique to them. And it makes the game play more quickly too, I think, especially, especially if you're playing solo. Yeah, I would think so. So I know that this one also uniquely comes with actually a digital set of the game. Um, when you buy a copy of it, when you pledge for a copy of it, excuse me, you'll also get the digital rewards of the Orcs Must Die game, along with two and the a beta access to their new Unchained one, uh, which technically would allow you to, if you have the digital game, they have a tie-in going. Where is the digital copy available from? Is it from Steam? Or? The digital copy is available from Steam. And what platforms is it for? All platforms that Steam supports, I assume. I don't know. I'm a PC person, so that's about all I know about. And I know it is available on, on PC. Now, this game is designed by Sandy Peterson, which you may recognize the name. He was also the designer of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Oh, very cool. So this one is still expensive because it comes with a bunch of minis. It comes with a bunch of custom dice um, and comes with some extra uh, digital items. So altogether, it's actually a $90 pledge. And this one is going to be ending on May 1st. Next one is one I thought you would like, Albert. Haiku Warrior. Have you seen this one yet? I, I saw it after you told me about it, and it looks neat. It's a solo-able RPG game. It was actually designed originally for solo, and then he added multiplayer variants. And it's a, a solo RPG, or it's an RPG told entirely through haikus. Yeah, every single card has haikus, and all of the GM actions and events, they all have haikus. So I guess you'll have to like the haikus. Some of them are going to be very lighthearted and, and, and humorous. For example, the epic snail. Meandering snail charges towards you slowly. Tension is building. <laughs> the f- like the fleeting answer. Can't think of an answer. Your mind going bananas. But was what, what was question? You have some other ones that are a little bit more serious. The king serpent sliding in and out. Waves duck and cover in fear. Nightmare of the Sea. But I think that just popping up those humorous ones just make you, they just make you laugh. The Chill Goblin. Hanging out on porch, relaxed and ready to fight. Noxious pipeweed cloud. <laughs> He's very chill, this goblin. It sounds very entertaining and lighthearted. It does appear very entertaining and lighthearted. I know that they're having a bunch of stretch goals to have various, um, personalities from across the internet come on and write extra haikus or even to have the um, the backers write extra haikus. But yeah, I think this one's going to definitely be going under the category of some light humor. That's not to say that the game is a light game. The game actually appears to be quite challenging. Um, you're playing through and you're acting against these cards, and the cards will be the GM for the game as you're running through it. And you'll play through six quests in the course of a game. And for solo mode, you're just, it's another beat your score type game, um, where if you do better, you do better, and you're always trying to just beat your own score as you go through it. But you'll include it, and you'll have access to your dice and a couple extra items, and you'll fight your way through the six quests. And so it's a challenge to use your skills and abilities correctly to be able to make it through as efficiently as possible. Yeah, this looks interesting, and it's pretty cheap, too. Yep, this one's only going for 20 bucks. Um, it's not quite yet funded when we're recording this. 
and it's going to be ending May 7th. So if you're interested in a, a nice, light, humorous um, RPG game, take a look at it. Haiku Warrior. I might consider pledging for this, but the, the next game already has my attention. What's the next game? <laughs> Valkyrie, The Next Step in Warfare by Dan Versen Games. Valkyrie is officially on Kickstarter. It's up. Um, this one's going to be going until May 7th. And this one is a minis game being made by DVG. And it's set in the world of Valkyries, where you have these huge war machines, giant robots, which are used to roam across the battlefields, and you're controlling it, um, going across and beating off other tanks in this, in this war, this war game. Want to tell us more about it, Albert? This is going to be a big game. The box is something like 12 inches by 18 inches long. And it's going to be a big, heavy box with a lot of minis. You get 28 minis per side, including four of the Valkyries, and 20 vehicles and infantry units. That's 24 for the U.S., 24 for the Russians, and there may be more factions depending on how the Kickstarter does. You also have eight uh, minis for the hex trains. Yeah, that's right. And this is a big map. It's 44 inches by 34 inches. It's almost 3 feet by 4 feet. Some people may need a new table for this one. And plus it comes with custom dice. Sold. Yeah, this is tempting. This is really tempting. I watched a little bit of the playthrough videos and they look interesting. What did you see on the playthrough videos? Um, They were teaching the mechanics of the game. Like I said, I was really rushed, so I didn't follow it closely. But it looks like the combat's very simple. You have cards for each unit. And each card has all the information you need for that unit. And the combat looked like it was pretty straightforward and, and fast playing. So this one, because it has so much coming into it, is another expensive one. This one's actually going for $100 to receive a copy of it with all the stretch goals. And um, this one is going to be going until May 7th. It's, it's worth mentioning it's $100 plus shipping. The shipping is not included, so if you pledge, you're actually pledging 120 in the U.S. So that's it for the news. So now we had an interview with Jerry Hawthorne, and we're going to be playing it for you guys. We're here with Jerry Hawthorne, the designer of Mice and Mystics from Plat Hat Games. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for coming out and uh, talking with us. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. So let's start off a conversation talking about your background, if you don't mind. So how long have you been gaming for? Uh, well, I guess I've been gaming since I was uh, probably about 10 years old, maybe. I learned to, um, I picked up the hobby of board games from my older brother who loved to play games like Starfleet Battles and and um you know world war 2 war games with hexes and chips and stuff like that squad hmm. leader and those kinds of games which one of those was your favorite back then i think starfleet battles i really enjoyed playing that with my brother and he played a lot of games uh solo too so he always had a game set up in his uh in his room how much older than you is he he is um, about seven years older than I am. Okay. 
Did you play solo games back then? Um, no, no, I didn't. But um, I mean, later on in life, I've tinkered around with solo games. By tinkering on, you mean playing or designing? Uh, designing, playing, um, uh, and of course, um, you know, Mice and Mystics, you can totally play it solo, so um, I, I've probably played hundreds of games of Mice and Mystics solo. <laughs> I imagine just for the playtesting, playtesting, you've played a lot solo. Yeah, it, yes, and in the early development, just playing it over and over again um, and making sure things were smooth, and every time I... Every time, even to this day, every time I write a chapter for the game, I play it myself first solo just to make sure it works out good. This, maybe this is jumping forward a little bit, but did you find that after playing it solo, it's very different when you switch to multiplayer? In terms of designing, does it change? Do you have to change a lot? No. No, um, no the, the game was, um, it, it wasn't designed with a specific number of players, um, you know, it can scale from one player up to, you could probably play it with six players. I've never done a six player game, but, um, if you had all the mice and you had the, a chapter that was, um, worked out in such a way you could play it with six players and the gameplay is the same. It doesn't change at all. When you're managing all six mice, when you're trying to play it solo, is that difficult for you? Uh, not for me, but you know, I, I know the system so well cause I designed it. Um, I've, I've had, <laughs> I've heard mixed things from people who've played it solo. Some people, feel like there's a lot of stuff that they have to manage and other people feel like it's a breeze. I guess it just depends upon the individual player and what kind of experience they have with different games played solo. This is a, your game is really big to, to play six, six characters. You must have a really big dinner table. <laughs> I have a, I, I bought a round table once I started really getting into the hobby. Um, and I bought this big round table and it is, it, it's a great gaming table. Nice, okay. So I know that Mice Mystics is a cooperative game, and I think that you're also developing another competitive game. Mm-hmm. What style of game do you enjoy more in general? Do you like more cooperative games? Do you like more competitive games? I really, I'm not that competitive of a person, so um, I enjoy comp- competitive games, but I, I don't get all, I'm not really, really, really into competition. So I think that I'd prefer to play cooperative games if um, if I had my choice. I kind of like the social aspect of uh, grouping up with other people and trying to accomplish a task together. Puzzle it all out together. Yeah, I kind of like uh, I, I kind of like the semi-cooperative or meta-cooperative games too, like Dead of Winter. Um, I, I really like the experience of playing that game um, because there's the added tension of that somebody might be a betrayer as well. So I think I, I'd say I'd prefer cooperative. Okay. So let's jump into Mice and Mystics. Um, now, now for people that aren't familiar with this game, it, it really it's a uh, the game comes in I think ten or eleven scenarios when you buy just the base game, and it's one long story told over multiple scenarios. Um, it, it, it's a really good story too. Did you write this story, or, or do you have a writer? Um, I wrote the story, but um, but my prose is kind of um, amateurish. And so we have, um, our, uh, good friend and colleague, Mr. Bistro, um, he is a fabulous wordsmith and he takes my story and he cleans it up and flowers up the writing so that it, um, so that it, it reads a lot more professional. 
Oh, okay. Did did uh did he change any of the story? Were you did he ever bring you back, give you back the copy and surprise you with something you you didn't have in there? He doesn't change the the main things, um, but he might change some of some of the little stuff, you know. And uh, he, Mister Bistro, has his own pretty cool and interesting way of looking at the world, and he always sprinkles a lot of that in. So that that I love, you know, his his way of looking at the world, and I love his effect on Mice and Mystics on the story by sprinkling in his twisted vision of the world. <laughs> twisted? He's kind of a twisted guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, so so not everybody is necessarily familiar with the story. We should probably have told people about the game a little bit more. Do, do you want to give like a, a quick rundown of what the game is about? Absolutely. Um, Mice and Mystics is basically, it's a cooperative game where... Um, one usually one to four players um, are cooperating to um, to go through this fantasy adventure, and it's it's really sort of like a bedtime story that's been turned into a game. So there is some reading involved, and um, the players play the part of these human beings that, um, through some treachery and magic, have been um, transformed into mice and. They are living in a kingdom that's in peril, and they are the only ones who can save the kingdom. But now they're the size of a fig, and they're in this giant castle, which used to be normal size, but now to them it's giant. And the kinds of things that they have to deal with, the kinds of challenges that they have to face, are all um, challenges. Uh, you know, things like instead of fighting a big fire-breathing dragon, they might have to take on the the grumpy cat that like roams the hallways of the castle. Um, that he's it, hard to fight too, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a big wrecking ball. And you know, they, they, they'll, they'll have to battle roaches and, and spiders and rats. And, and then there's all kinds of other stuff that the story elements throw in that kind of change the game up every time you play it as you're playing through the stories. So that's pretty much what it is. It's kind of like an RPG light board game kind of thing. And who's it designed for? What sort of age group did you design that for? I designed it for all ages, um, ho- hoping that people of all ages would be able to play it and uh, and enjoy the experience together, and um, and you know perhaps enjoy it for different reasons. It's a, it's a great game. It seems to resonate with children. It's a great game for adult gamers to use to introduce their their young gamers to the world of board gaming and the world of adventure gaming and maybe even possibly RPGs so that they so that they they get their the taste of it and they understand what it's all about because it's really all about the story and the experience of uh, of experiencing it together and interacting with it. I'll, I'll say from personal experience, it, it really does work for all age ranges. We got it for Christmas uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, I played with my wife and my two kids, and my son was almost turning six. We played right before he turned six, and he had no trouble with it at all, and he had a lot of fun, and we all had a lot of fun together. It worked out great, and Good. and I do think he'll be able to use this as ex- this experience to maybe play role-playing games later, which I'm trying to get them into. And I know for us, we have the opposite end of the age group. I played it with the rest of my siblings, all of us who are older around my age, and all of us still really enjoy playing through the game. Some of us got more attached to certain characters, but all of us really enjoyed the game. That's cool. That's basically what I 
what I really wanted, and that's what we found. Um, a lot of people, you know, have labeled it a kid's game or labeled it a family game, and that's cool if they want to label it that way, but I know plenty of adults who play it and, you know, without any kids around, and um, they get lots of joy out of it as well. So, And so, you know, the expansions um, gradually t- tune up the the difficulty of the of the game, uh, the challenge level of the game gets tuned up because since it is a, an ongoing story, a linear ongoing story, you sort of assume that the players are experienced by the time they're playing the expansions and they, they kind of know the tricks that the that the game pulls on them and stuff and they are more mentally prepared for it. So we, we introduce new and different challenges. I know for us though that with the even with the base game we found it um it wasn't a very difficult challenge. We enjoyed playing through it almost, just enjoying mm-hmm. the adventure. But we never felt really challenged. At one point in time, uh we switched out some of the cards. My Mystics comes with a set of encounter cards which list which enemies are gonna be coming out on the board. And so someone on BGG, and I apologize that I don't have the name of the person right now, but they created a set of cards that amp up the difficulty so it'll add on more enemies coming change of the variety so for instance when you would have been encountering six roaches it now changes to be six roaches and three rats for example mm-hmm. and we switched those cards to make it more difficult just to make the game more challenging did you ever at any point in time think about doing something like that well the game actually comes with the difficult encounter cards already included in the box that's exactly what those are for they um they they allow you to customize the difficulty if you want, um, just by replacing the standard difficult or the standard encounter cards with the difficult encounter cards. Um, they do the exact same thing that you're talking about. They add minions, um, and they they can be pretty challenging. I know I just played a game today um, that I'm working on a, a lost chapter that's going to be um, released that coincides with Tail Feathers, and I use the difficult encounter cards today, and we got our tails handed to us. <laughs> so we- well, you know, the, the, that scares me. One of the questions I was going to ask you a little later was, uh, why is the game so hard? And you guys are talking about <laughs> maybe it's a little easy. <laughs> well, we have a matrix. Um, the, pretty much all of the, all the chapters in the first set have a roughly 70% win rate um, according to our testing stat- statistics. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you got a seventy percent chance of winning those chapters in the in the first base game, um, and then the expansions get more difficult. There's one chapter I think in uh, Downward Tales that's only got like a fifty to fifty five percent win rate. Um, so, that, and that's that's one of the harder ones. Well, okay. You know, my uh, for us, our win rate was about fifty percent. Though, you know, I told you my son was five at the time, and his strategy was to, like to take Colin in the tank and then hide in the back and try and collect treasure. So, <laughs> <laughs> that might have something to do with it. That might have had something to do with it. But so I, I have heard you're... other people complain about the difficulty. I had a friend who, who, who gave up on the game because he said it was too difficult for him. So I wonder if he was doing something wrong now. Yeah, see, I mean, you hear, this is one of those crazy things about game design is that, you know, you have one person who says something's too easy and you have another person who says the very same thing but just the opposite. They say it's too hard and you're trying and you're trying to create something that appeals to both. Um, that's why we use the statistics that we use the matrix to find out 
you know, exactly what the win rate is. And then we estimate what we think we want the game win rate to be at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. That's what you got to do. You can't make everybody happy. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was literally told by Colby to, to make it have a 70% win rate, um, on the first, on the first base set. So that's what I shot for. Wow. Okay. What was the win rate you're shooting for, for the expansions? A 60% win rate. So I want it to be, I mean, I know it doesn't sound like much, but once you start getting the difficulty up just a little, of, uh, just a, you know, 10 percentage points, um, you really start to see, you don't, I mean, I don't want to alienate any of the players that are already, have, have already fallen in love with the system. So I just want to create enough challenge so that the people that are already hooked, you know, find it satisfying. So I know you've mentioned now the expansions a few times. Would you introduce us to what the expansions are that are currently out for Mysticks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, currently, the expansions for Mice and Mystics um, uh, include the Heart of Glorm and um, the Downward Tales. Heart of Glorm um, is a small expansion um, with a smaller price point, and it only comes with one new minion miniature and one new hero miniature. And um, it's got a smaller storybook that only has six chapters in it, and it's sort of a darker tale and uh, kind of a kind of a mix between. Phantom of the Opera and um, Frankenstein. It's um, it was designed to be released right around Halloween, and um, it it features this uh, Glorm, who is the is the bad guy, the arch villain in the game. Um, he's a glowworm that has had some treachery done to him in the past, and so he becomes evil, and he um, he gets exposed to these magical energies and um, absorbs them and has uh, takes on these powers. And then he's basically controlling all the minions in the, in the castle. And so he's a new threat for the mice and, um, and they have to go into the castle and they get trapped inside the castle and uh, they have to find their way out. And it's, it's a more challenging um, all the all the same minions from the base game have all been twisted and tormented by um, by Glorm's um, evil magics and stuff. So they're all new versions of the old uh, figures that you had in the base game, and um, they're, they they ramp up the challenge level pretty good. And then um, and then after that comes um, the Downward Tales, where um, basically because of some of the events that happened in the previous sets, um, there is a a strong need for the mice to relocate their mouse village out into the forest to find a new tree to live in. But unfortunately the forest is not the safe place that they want it to be. And so, um, the, the, the balance of good and bad in the forest is all out of whack and Colin and his group of, of, uh, of heroes have to figure out how to get that balance correct in the forest so that, they can migrate all the mice to live there safely, and it's it's a series of uh, of chapters that all that all tell that story. And, and each each expansion is a standalone story. No, so you don't necessarily need to have the the first expansion to enjoy the second one. Um, you don't have to have the first one to enjoy the second one because the the first one is sort of like a side a sideline story, and then down with tales sort of um, gives you a little synopsis of what happened in in that little side story so you understand the backstory and you, so you can skip that small expansion if you want to go straight to Down with Tales. But, um, but I mean, 
Down and Tales, everybody says it's, you know, it's really a good, a good part of the story to have. It really, it, it lends a lot of background to what's going on in Downward Tales. So. You mean Heart of Glorum is good to have to play Downward Tales? Yes, yes, it's good. <laughs> uh, and there's also two standalone expansions, right? They're individual scenarios. Uh, well, yeah, there's a, a couple of download downloadable chapters that we have on our website that you can download and play, and they're standalones, and um, we should be having more coming out. There'll be another one coming out after Tail Feathers is released. Tail feathers is that also something for my semistics? Yes, yeah. Um, this year we'll see the release of Tail Feathers, which is um, uh, a game set in the My Mystics universe, but it's not a cooperative game. It's a head-to-head battle game where you uh, you build a forest either of, of of mice or rats, and you battle it out in the forest, in the trees, and um, in the sky. Um, because you can get on birds and fly around and attack each other on birds and stuff. I've been wondering about this, but I I don't think all the characters in Mice and Mystics, that all the player characters were human before, but they all can talk. Are are all animals able to talk? Well, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of that, the, the kind of stuff that you get from, bedtime stories kind of thrown in here. But basically what, what the gist is, is that part of their enchantment that these humans get, they get turned into, they they get turned into mice. Part of the enchantment is, is that they relate to the world sort of as they see it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. They communicate, you know, with the, with the other forest creatures and stuff. Um, And it's, you know, it, it facilitates the story and, it allows you to look at humanity through the eyes of a, of another creature that's not human, and you get to explore these different character virtues and stuff through the eyes of creatures who are not human. But I always found it fun to make fun of my sister because the cat can't talk. <laughs> She's a big cat lover, and I always had fun that the cat is the only animal character who doesn't talk. <laughs> yeah, well, um... I think that uh, there's a an Italian artist who um, who drew a comic of Mice and Mystics, and he had he had Brody talking. And, oh. Uh, oh, don't tell my sister. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say very much, but he had him talking. I never, I mean, I never, I never thought about him talking, but I didn't, I didn't rule it out either. It just never came up in the story. He's just this menacing, you know wrecking ball really he just comes in and just starts pouncing and hitting things and never really gives anybody a chance to talk including the bad guys fortunately (laughs) (laughs) says eat first ask questions later (laughs) why did you decide that you wanted to have the cat be the big bad guy i just thought it would be i mean uh, yeah i just basically sat down and said okay what what would a mouse find scary inside a castle you know and i think that the biggest, most threatening thing besides humans um, would be, you know, the, the cat, which has been basically, he earns his living there, he earns his keep in the in the castle by catching mice and eating mice. I know that many of the other smaller enemies that you decided to put in the game 
uh, are all bugs. You have this, like the roaches and the centipede. I know that for my wife, these gross her out so much that she doesn't <laughs> even want to play with the with the centipede coming out. Um, <laughs> what made you decide to use those enemies, the the bugs? Well, you really are working with a limited amount of enemies that you can have for for mice. Um, I can't just put little orcs and goblins in there, and um, you know, you're just you you just got to work with what you what you have, and so I'm constantly looking for for new adversaries for the mice because um, you know I want to keep I want to keep things coming. And down with tails, you have the frogs that are um, you know that are sort of the bullies of the forest and you have the, the bullfrogs, which are even worse. And then you have these, um, fire belly newts, which, um, are these, these little salamanders that have been enslaved and made to do bad things by the frogs and the bullfrogs. And you have a, a, a big giant snake. snake that's, uh, that's a big bad guy. And there's an owl that, that patrols the forest and swoops down and gets your, your mice as they, if they're, get caught out in the open. When you wrote this, uh, the game originally, did you already have all these stories written out or did you, or have you been adding more sense since you came up with the original game? When I came up with the original game, um, I didn't know whether the game would be a success. I didn't know whether it would be popular. I, uh, I wrote the story so that it would be a complete story um, so it has a, you know, full beginning and end, but that it would have like a, just a little bit of a tail on there so that you could, if the game became popular, I could write sequels for it and stuff. So at the end of Mice and Mystics, the mice don't actually get to turn back into humans. And so there's, there's always that, that element there of wondering how are they going to get back into human form and will they want to, or, you know, will they, will they become attached to their life as mice and, uh, you know, these are things, these are questions that um, will be answered. As long as um, people keep on buying the games, I'll keep on writing the story. After I got done with the base story, I immediately started writing down with Tales. So um, that one came right on the heels of the main story. And then Colby um, asked me to produce a smaller expansion because um, he was worried that we wouldn't be able to produce down with Tales in time to keep up with the demand for the, um, for a continuation on the story. And so I quickly wrote up, um, Heart of Glorm, um, based upon this, um, this bad guy that I had envisioned that was a, a glowworm turned evil. Wow. Okay. So you were planning to release it for Halloween, you said. So how much, how much time did you have to design that expansion? I didn't have much time at all. It's a, um, when I when I'm writing these expansions, I I average um, one chapter a month. It takes me about a month to do a chapter, and um, that includes testing. Well, that no, that 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 includes my personal testing. Okay. Um, so it takes me about a month to write a chapter and test it and get it ready for for open testing. Um, and I uh, wrote six chapters for um, for Heart of Glorm. So it took me about six months to get Heart of Glorm already, and then. What we do is we we test while we're while we're putting the polish on, you know, doing graphics and stuff like that. We we do a more a, a wider test, and then 
usually we're only just refining things at that at that time. So we can kind of work on two things together at the same time. I see. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned the uh, the art and stuff. Who who is the artist for the game? I really like the the style of the art and and the look of the figures and everything. Um, well, the the sculptor, his name is Chad Hoveter. He um, he lives right here in Dallas, Texas, and he's a good friend of mine. And um, he's a professional sculptor and sculpts um, miniatures for um, all these different board game companies. And um, the artist, his name is John Ariosa. And you can find him on DeviantArt. Um, and he is, uh, he's, he's done all the artwork for My Mystics from the very beginning all the way through. And he's also working on Tail Feathers. Okay. Who came up with the, uh, the look of it? Was that, was that his idea entirely? Or did you like tell him, I want it to look like this? And I, uh, I told him how I wanted it to look, but I, I am a firm believer that artists need to have the freedom to express themselves and sort of take ownership over, over things. So, um, we, and, and we also have our graphic artist, um, who, who also works on all this stuff, Dave Richards. And he, he envisioned these certain color palettes. And, and so we kind of work together with this look and, and this concept of, you know, this old German storybook kind of look to everything. And um, like that, you know, there's a clock um, that where you manage all your stuff is, is like a little clock. And that's kind of like my my riff on Hickory Dickory Dock, the mouse run up the clock, you know. And there's all this little these little elements that we've thrown in to kind of make things come alive. How did you decide on using the cheese as a time tracker almost to decide when new enemies are coming out? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's actually kind of an interesting thing. Um I, um, from the very beginning, I knew that cheese is going to be a currency in the game. It was going to, it was going to be, um, a face on one of the, on the, on the, on the dice. And so whenever you were rolling dice, the more you roll dice, the more you generate cheese. And cheese is sort of a, re- a reward that you get for whenever you fail at your dice roll, if you think about it. And so what this does is for younger players, um, even though they might fail a roll, they don't get disappointed like they usually do because they're getting the cheese. And a lot of little kids like to gather up their cheese and hoard their cheese. And I don't know, they just, they just like it. <laughs> so, um, but one day I was playing the game and I realized that if you put six of the cheese together in a circle, it created like a little pizza and um, a little cheese wheel. And at that moment, it just dawned on me that you know, that this could be used as a timer. I guess a, the face of a clock sort of image sort of came into my mind. And I immediately picked up the phone and called my publisher. I called Colby and said, I just uh, I just realized that these cheese wedges make a full cheese wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, so I kind of incorporated that and it became this little mechanism that, that is, a, is a clock that pushes the game and it sets a pace for the game and um, it keeps the pressure on and I'm sure Colby loves receiving phone calls like that. <laughs> well, he was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the way that mechanic works because it not only gives it the time, but you know, it, it ratchets up the tension. At the same time, it gives the players more strategy about what to do because there, there are ways to deal with the cheese on the clock. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, when you're designing a game, you basically create all these little knobs that you can, and then you use 
the the abilities or the or the situations in the game to turn those little knobs at certain times and that's basically the activity that you create so if you have a cheese clock then you can develop you know um, items and character abilities and all kinds of things that relate to the cheese clock and in you have other little subsystems in the game that you can write abilities for and stuff too. So, yeah, I really wish the game had a little wooden cheese pieces. <laughs> there actually is. I saw one uh, user on Board Game Geek who came out with a very well designed whole wooden clock board where the clock actually twisted and turned and, and unrolled wow. some inner cheese pieces to reveal as the clock came up, came apart. A very beautiful build. I don't yeah. know if you've seen it, Jerry. Yeah, I saw it. It's amazing. That sounds nice. I, I'm looking for something a little less complex and maybe just a little cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> people people make all kinds of cool stuff for, for board games. It's really pretty neat. Have you gotten into getting any of this cool stuff for your copies? Yeah, I got um, a friend of mine um, did a hand-carved wooden box that looks like a giant book. And it has, you know, it has in carved relief on the front of it, it says Mice and Mystics. And it's like the logo. And it looks like this giant wooden book. And you un- you unlatch it and you open it up and inside nestles your Mice and Mystics game. <laughs> Wow, that's nice. It's crazy. <laughs> did you uh, did you paint your figures? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I created a painting guide that's available on our website too. So if anybody else wants to paint their figures, they can they can use that painting guide. It's it's uh, geared towards beginners. Oh, okay. You know, I've wanted to paint my game, but every time I look at them, I, I think you know, if I try, I'm just going to ruin them, <laughs> and, and that'd be a shame. <laughs> I think you can buy replacement minis from Plat Hat, I believe. Maybe that's what I should do then. We, buy an extra set and paint them. Yeah, we sell bags of uh, my Mystics miniatures. They're they're pretty affordable too. Okay, I'll check that out. So, for a lot of the equipment you designed, the uh, the nut shield and things like that, all of it fits in very well with the theme of the mice. Did you come up with all that on your own, or did you look to other source materials? Um, I just, once I, um, once I had established the core system of, of how the game was going to function, um, then of course I needed to populate it with a bunch of content. And, um, I basically just spent time daydreaming about what little things mice could use, little household objects mice could use to make little weapons and stuff out of. And I just brainstormed and wrote those items down as I was thinking of them and um, I had already been given a number from Colby uh, of how many how many um, items he wanted in the search deck for the game that he that he felt would be a good number and I just worked my way towards that number was it always were you trying to balance an amount of the different types of items like shields and the different weapons when you're making that deck Yes, I was. I was trying to balance all that out. But at the same time, if a cool idea came to me um, uh, that would just be super cute and would evoke the whole um, smallness and, and the mousy kind of theme, then I would I would put it in there. I also created like these little, little um, things we call tricks in the game, or basically what these represent 
um, as the mice learn how to, as, as, as the humans learn how to be more comfortable in their mousy bodies, they learn these little, these little tricks that, um, that mice have used through the ages to hide from, from, uh, from people and to, and to, and to survive the challenges that mice have to face. And so I put these little tricks into the game and these are little, little one shot, um, special things that you can do. Um, and those have come in the form of cards as well. Little things like linking your tail together to trip a rat or, you know, uh, like, um, there's a card called intense cowering that basically when a, when a bad guy comes up to your mouse to try to attack your mouse, you could play this card and all you, your mouse just cowers and he's so cute that the, that the, the bad guy decides to go attack somebody else. The idea is that he's so cute that they're going to attack someone else. Yeah. Yeah. He takes pity on him. He's just <laughs> cowering. So, you know, he just is cowering so bad that the, that the minion just decides to go to attack somebody else. <laughs> he loses interest. That's a funny mechanic. I like that. <laughs> Did you find it limiting to use mice's characters? Yeah, very. Did you ever wish you had a different type of character? I don't know, hedgehogs or something. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I like. I, I actually even created a little hedgehog, but I mean, I haven't I haven't put him in the game oh. yet or anything. But that's how um, some of the characters for Downward Tales came about. I mean, we got Jacoby, who's a gecko, and um, Diddy the Shrew, who's a little shrew bard. There's a lot of other um, books and movies and other games, role-playing games out there, which put the players in the view perspective of mice. Were you inspired by anything else when you decided to use that theme for Mice and Mystics? Oh, sure. Um, I think um, Tom and Jerry was a big inspiration for me. It was one of my <laughs> favorite cartoons when I was a kid. I could see that. I could see that. The, um but I also liked um, Secret of Nim and um, Despero and um, and and Mouse Guard and Mice Templar and uh, I'm sorry, the um, Martin the Warrior, the the, the Redwall series. Yeah, the Redwall series. I <clears throat> sorry, it, um, slipped my mind there for a second. But yeah, the Redwall series that that that's all really good stuff too. So all all the, I mean all the stuff. I love it all. There's a lot of good media out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm the kind of person when I design a game, um, then I try to find as much information about the subject that I'm designing for, and so I kind of throw myself into it. So I did do, you know, a lot of. Uh, I went back and read Redwall and stuff like that to just to just to kind of be inspired and be in that in that spirit when I was designing. Do you ever use the Mice and Mystics components to sort of tell your own story when you're playing through with your kids? Um, no. No, I haven't. I've, uh, we stick to the story that I wrote. Um, but I, um, you know, when I, I've played some lost chapters and stuff with them that I, uh, that I've worked on that haven't been released or haven't been published there's there's other little spin-off stories um that I've written that just haven't been they haven't made it into circulation yet. So so you've been uh, enlisted your kids in playtesting. That sounds neat. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't force it on them or anything. <laughs> but um I'm sure they're very excited. Yeah, they're it's kind of funny cuz you know their dad's a game designer and so they I guess, you know, they 
they see what I'm doing all the time. And I don't know if it, it's just, they've been overexposed to it or what, but you know, they're like, Oh yeah, daddy designs games. <laughs> you know. I thought that they would you be know, like what? strutting around bragging to their friends and stuff, but no, it's all <laughs> normal to them. When I was growing up, my dad used to drive an ice cream truck, and it was sort of the same thing. Eh, it's an ice cream truck, big deal. <laughs> sure, I could have ice cream and soda and chips for breakfast. So what? Isn't everybody? <laughs> so I know there's one other design part of the game that we really enjoyed. The game comes with a set of custom dice. Uh, was that a difficult thing to, to try and put in the game, or did that just flow naturally? Oh, that was like one of the first things that I designed for the game. And um, I... Uh, I tweaked the design on those over and over and over again until I got the balance that I wanted. Um, but it wasn't the most difficult challenge for, um, for me. I think that the, the most difficult challenge of Mice and Mystics is writing the story and having the story relate in board game terms. So you have to, you literally have to write a story, but you have, I mean, it has to, it has to be related to this board game that I've created. And it's really hard to do because um, it has to fit into the definition of what, what is a story. So it has to have all the elements, the highs and the lows, and that has to follow a certain pacing. And, um, but it also has to be a game at the same time. It's incredibly difficult. Do you brainstorm with the rest of the planet crew the whole time you're working out the story or you just try and work all that out by yourself? I just work it out by myself usually. And, um, my, I have a, a group of people I call my creative core and it's like just a handful of guys that, um, that help me stay in the zone and, you know, they give me feedback and pushback when things aren't right. And, um, they, you know, they question me on things that they don't, that they don't get or they don't like. And it really helps me. So what was your favorite part of the design process for my semistics? Um, I actually like playing the game and, and testing, you know, I, I usually test with, um, one or two other friends and we, um, we sit down and we have a good time. We make sure that we have a good time, um, and just play it and have fun. And, um, that's my favorite part, I think. And the, I mean, and, and from a broader point of view, just the whole, the whole collaborative effort involved in making a game because no no one person makes a game it's this, it's a, an enormous collaboration between a lot of different talented in, individuals and if you think about the artists and the sculptors and the editors and play testers and writers and i mean it's i mean, it's just it's it's this huge and ever growing um like army of people that put one game out you know and um it's it's quite inspirational to work with all those people. Yeah, it sounds really fun. It is. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's overwhelming sometimes the amount of work you wouldn't you wouldn't expect, but it, it is fun. It's overwhelming to work with all the playtesters or to do the designing? Um the the design work is a lot of work. Um especially with my semistics where there's so much content that you have to that you're dealing with and writing those, um, like I said, writing the chapters is, is it, like I said, it, well, it takes me a month for each one. They're just a lot of work, but, um, 
But I mean, obviously it's rewarding or else I wouldn't be doing it. But I also have a full-time job and I'm a dad and I'm a husband and, you know, um, my house is falling apart around me while I'm working on games and stuff. I mean, <laughs> I have all the normal pressures as of anybody else, but it's like working two jobs basically. So did you, do you have a favorite character in the game? I do. I like Tilda. Tilda. Mm-hmm. Why Tilda? I don't know. I think I identify with her virtues probably more than the other characters. Maybe she's, <laughs> uh, uh, She's the healer of the of the group, and so she's uh, she's the one that people depend upon to um, to sort of hold things together. And uh, and then the way the voice of her character is, is I, I really like her character because she's strong, and um, and she, but but she's got a good you know she's got a good moral center you know. There's a chapter that I wrote about her in uh, Downward Tales, uh, chapter five, where she's actually um, she's actually been been victimized, and so the other characters have to have to save her. And uh, it's pretty it's a pretty cool chapter because you know because she is the healer and she's the only healer in the game. Um, a lot of uh, I mean a lot of people choose her uh, quite a bit. She gets chosen to be in just about every adventuring party. But except for in this one, she's she's unconscious through the whole thing. And the miser having to rescue her. She's going down this river, floating down this river. And they're trying to run along the bank. And they're trying to re- catch up with her and rescue her and stuff. And um, it's a, it kind of throws people for a loop. Because they don't know what to do now that they don't have a healer. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Were you okay with the fact that people often chose for... Tilda to be in the game or did you try and avoid that in designing? Well, no, I didn't. I mean, I didn't try to avoid that in designing, but I tried to leave, um, leave plenty of options for people who didn't want, who may, might not even like her character and didn't want to have her in their party. Um, but it, but you're always going to need some kind of healing if you want to have a, the best chance of, uh, of beating a chapter. And so I made the, um, probably the best and easiest to use healing ability. I made it usable by any character class. So you don't have to have Tilda. Yeah. The game seems really balanced. I I noticed that uh, when we played without her, we played some with her and some without her. And, you know, if if we're not using her, everybody's more powerful and we could still get to the scenarios a little faster. And it, it balanced out pretty well in the end. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to have her, and we've done plenty of testing without her. Um, I, and there's there's plenty of people out there who um, who play completely play without her. Who they, they don't even like her character at all. So fine by me. So do all these characters reappear in Tail Feathers? Um, all the all the main characters are um, from the from the base game are represented in the base game of Tail Feathers. You can actually take them and play them in tail feathers. Um, we we provide cards for them so that all of your base set of mice and mystics figures can be used in tail feathers. If you already there's own, a different set of figures in tail feathers. Oh yeah, and if you already own mice and mystics, you're basically gonna 
when you buy tail feathers, you're basically going to double your army size by having all those figures from from Mice and Mystics because they're all usable in tail feathers. Now, is the game about the same size as Mice and Mystics, like that size big box? Yeah, it should be about the same size box. Okay. Will it be the same artist? I think you said it is. Yep. No. Same artist. Okay. Same sculptor. And there's a little and I campaign. Know that I've seen. I know I've seen some of the pictures of the minis uh, around. I think on Twitter. I think the minis for tail feathers, especially, look very nice. Yes. The swooping bird minis. Yes, they do. They look good. I'm excited about it. You'll be able to swap out the riders with different riders have different abilities and stuff and. Um, As in physically swapping out the figures or just the cards? You physically swap the figures. You can pop the figures off the bird and stick a different figure on there. And, um, and when when do you expect to release the game? Um, sometime this year. Okay. We'll know better once we get past the playtesting and we're able to like um, send it to manufacturing. Because when you send it to manufacturing, you can... You could pretty much predict, um, you know, that it'll be like whatever three months, you know, until it hits the street. Yeah, that's right. But with the playtesting, you really don't know because you know, it, as long as it takes to to test it. Yep. So I know you said it's a minis game, sort of in the spirit of something like Attack Wing. Do you mean that it has programmable movement like Attack Wing, or something else? Um, well, I never really compared it to Attack Wing, and honestly, I've never. I don't know. Uh, the, the Attack Wing rule set, or I've never played the game, so I don't know anything about Attack Wing. But um, but basic, but movement is different than those than those games because don't they use like a they have like a a template that a, a dial down. selection where you select an advance of yeah. turn. Yes, this is a little bit different. Uh. In this game, the birds they can tilt on their on their on their little base. They're mounted on a ball and socket, and so you'll be able to tilt your bird that'll indicate to your opponent which direction you intend on flying. And of course, your opponent's going to be tilting their birds, which indicates to you which you know which direction they're going to be flying. And when you activate a bird you will plot its movement using this very simple um, system based upon the direction that your bird is tilted. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It's a very visual game because you'll see these birds, these beautiful bird miniatures, and they're all tilted and they're flying different directions and stuff, and it looks really cool. That sounds really nice. Am I going to have to paint these also? They aren't pre-painted by any chance. They are they? not pre-painted. You will have to learn how to paint by then because... <laughs> You're gonna want you're gonna want to paint these ones. Okay, I've got an assignment. <laughs> so is Tail Feathers gonna be coming with any sort of campaign? Yeah, it comes with a little campaign. And it's um it's a way to it, it's a set of rules that allows you to um link several battles together and have a progression of your characters from one battle to the next. Your 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 birds can get better or worse. They can develop grudges against other birds. You can, your troops can become veterans. And, um, and basically what, what you're doing is you're throughout playing these, um, these scenarios, you're trying to 
give yourself the most favorable win condition for the final scenario. Does it have a story like Mice and Mystics at all? Yeah, it's actually linked to the Mice and Mystics, the overarching story of Mice and Mystics. Will it be where there's a storybook? Well, there's no storybook, but um, it'll come with a rule book and a scenario book. And the scenario book has little a little story that goes along with each of the scenarios, kind of like chapters in the, in the Mice and Mystics. Okay. But not nearly as intense and not, there's not a bunch of reading going on, not a bunch of um, that kind of stuff. But it'll tell you the story and the story links into the, into the Mice and Mystics world. There's a reason for Next everything. The timeline from the base game or from later expansions? Um, uh, from, from later. It's, it, it, it's, I'm in, in, in real time with the story. So, um, Tailfeathers takes place right where Downwood Tales ends. So is it going to have any sort of cooperative modes or anything that can play it solo? There will be, it would, uh, like any other head to head battle game, it would be difficult to play it solo. Um, but, uh, um, I mean, there'll be team play, so you could team up with a, with somebody else and cooperate with them against another team. That's not, the, I know that's not the same thing as what you're asking, but unfortunately, and, uh, unfortunately here I am on a solo gaming podcast <laughs> talking about a game that's not going to really support solo play. That's fine. You know, a lot of people still like play, playing games like that solo. I'm sometimes I'm surprised at seeing some of the games people do play solo, stuff that I think just would never work, and, and people have fun with it. I mean, I admit I've played a Combat Commander solo, playing both sides, and you know, had fun with it because I was just it was basically telling me a story. I also think that there is some sort of challenge to playing even these head-to-head combat, basically against yourself, trying to plot out what's the best move on each individual turn. It's a good way to to increase your skill level at a game for sure. Um, but I don't know if it, I don't know if it holds the same thrill as it would be to have a, an opponent or, or something or, or some kind of system that would challenge you a little bit more than just challenging yourself. I guess there's always the die rolls that, that can kind of throw you for a loop. What else do we have? I think we're up to a final question. I think yeah, I think we're ready to wrap up. I've really enjoyed this though. Um, <clears throat> Final Jeopardy. <laughs> Final Jeopardy. <laughs> so, is there anything else that you want to share? Well, I'll, I'll just say a couple of things. First of all, um, I, um, I, I'm intrigued by the whole concept of solo gaming, and I've done some in the past. Um, I've, uh, I really, really like. Um, the idea of um, of having a story involved. So choose your own adventure kind of game books and stuff have always been a, a sideline interest of mine. And I've always said that I wanted to create one someday, but I don't want it to be like your traditional um, solo game. I mean, I, I, I don't want it to be like your traditional choose your own adventure book. I would want it to have a board and have some kind of gameplay that would be more than just a game book. Do you guys ever read any game books or do any solo game books? Mm-hmm. I, I have a few. Yeah. yeah, I enjoy them a lot. So uh, I am very, I am very interested in the world of solo gaming and stuff. So if any um, buddies out there listening or anything that um, listening to me on this podcast and stuff 
um, feel free to contact me. Um, you know, you can always get me on Twitter. I'm mice underscore guy on Twitter. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me nowadays because um, it's just so it, it's so easy to approach people on Twitter. Um, but yeah, um, that kind of thing is, is really interesting to me. Later on this year, I have Tail Feathers coming out, which is the head-to-head -head battle game we've just been talking about. We'll also have um, a new Lost Chapter coming out for Mice and Mystics um, that'll tie in Mice and Mystics and Tail Feathers together a little bit. Um, later on this year, um, my um, my good friend and colleague at Plaid Hat Games, Isaac Ashes, has got a new card game coming out, which is going to be phenomenal. It's called Ashes. And um, sometime... Um, in the sometime in the in the near or not so near future, Seafall will be hitting the shelves. Um, I believe he which, said he wants to have it be sometime before the end of the year. Before the end of the year, good deal. Seafall will be hitting the shelves. Um, so we got a lot of cool stuff coming up, and a lot of cool stuff that is being worked on behind the scenes. Um, there's just there's games lined up and stuff that's going to blow everybody away. So keep your eye on Plat Hat Games. Come and say hi to us at Gen Con. <laughs> All right. I think Plaidhead Games has been blowing everybody away lately for quite a while now. Yep. They definitely have a reputation for some very strong games, especially my semestics. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, Colby, Colby believes in taking risk and, um, and, and creating special games, and that's what we're all about. So, um, But we, we're also very into, like, into communicating with fans and going on podcasts and being open and uh, talking about the stuff that we have going on. Cause we want to just pull back that curtain and, and just have like this really good relationship with, um, with the gamers out there and everything. And I think that's also pretty unique too. So thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for coming. We yeah. really appreciate you coming. Yeah. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, and welcome back from the interview. And now we're going to go ahead and talk about the game Mice and Mystics. Hope you enjoyed listening to Jerry talk about the design and, and how it came up and all the different things he mentioned. Now, Mice and Mystics is a cooperative uh, adventure game, a dungeon crawl style game. It, was, it came out in 2012. And as a matter of fact, there's two expansions available for it right now, plus a couple small uh, scenarios you could purchase. Lost chapter expansions. This game brings a lot of stuff. It's pretty neat. The, let me run down to the components. First of all, well, first of all, the components really stand out quality. They're really great. The minis look really nice. All the art is fantastic and very consistent. It's just a pleasure to play the game just because of the components and their quality. Before we continue, I should probably also just say a disclaimer that um, even though I do at this point in time work as a consultant for Plat Hat Games, the publisher of Mice and Mystics, that is not at all related to anything I'm going to say about this interview here, this review here. That's right, and congratulations on that. All right, so the game has minis. I already mentioned that. There's minis for each of the characters. I believe the base game brings six characters, so you can have six distinct figures for them. And then there's also minis for the villains. They're not all unique, and as a matter of fact, some of the villain minis could be two different types of villains. For example, there's some rat warriors and some elite rat warriors. Um... When you have to face elite rat warriors, you put a little counter under the mint figure to signify what it is, and you can see it very clearly as you're playing. So the game brings also brings character cards. Each of the player characters has a large size character card. 
which has all the information you'll need to know, the basic information for that character. And then there's also character cards for all the villains and monsters. And these are smaller, regular playing card size sort of cards. There's a bunch of equipment cards. These are different things you could find or even start the game with. And they generally give you more abilities. Uh, they'll, they'll make you fight better, for example, or raise your defense values. Or they might give you abilities, more unique abilities. There's a set of skill cards. These are skills that each character has acquired through the course of the game. And these are sort of used in a sense to level up your character as you're playing. As you adventure, you'll be able to earn skill, you earn some points, which we'll talk a lot more about later. And you could, one of the things you can do with the points is spend them to get new skills. The skills do different things. Um, you could say they change the game rule a little bit. For example, they let, some of the mice are able to heal using the skill cards. Um, some mice might be able to move faster or do more damage. Next up, there's a bunch of encounter cards. There's a deck of encounter cards, and it brings two types. It brings standard and extra difficult encounter cards if you're finding the game too easy. And these are pretty interesting, and they're going to use um, the the cards listed different chapters, and we'll get more into the chapters later, but the chapter, the farther you are into the game, the farther you are through the chap the story. There are encounter cards in the game. The encounter cards are basically used to determine what villains and monsters you're going to fight. You're going to draw one randomly, and that'll tell you what type of monsters, and they're all very thematic. Um, so if some of the monsters, for example, are cockroaches, you want to necessarily draw a card that tells you cockroaches and mice. If you have cockroaches, it'll probably be a centipede going along with it. Um, the Now, the cards also have multiple levels in the form of chapters. As you play the game, you will progress through chapters. And the higher up the chapters go, the more difficult the encounters become. The game brings a, a number of large double-sided boards. These are used to make the map. Uh, a normal adventure may have anywhere from three to four tiles. And, again, the artwork in these is, are really pretty. And they're, there's generally squares that you can move on, but sometimes the squares have very distinct shapes and odd shapes. Like, for example, if you're uh, walking through some tiles, the tiles are sometimes a little bit rectangular, cobblestone-shaped. So they look really nice. Yeah, I should definitely mention about that piece of the art, that the art meshes almost seamlessly with the mechanics of the game. Normally, if you have like a hex-based board, so all the hexes are very clear, and the hexes are almost overlaid all over all of the art. With this game, what they did is they made it so that all of your movement regions, what would be the equivalent of a hex, are tied into the art. So if you're outside, then a cobblestone from the outside courtyard is an entire movement space. You'll move along from one cobblestone to the other, and it, you count how many cobblestones is your movement. If you're inside, it's floor tiles, or occasionally it's a whole chair space, or a, a book will sometimes be a movement tile. And all of this ties into the art to make all of the mechanics blend straight in to the art, and it makes it look just gorgeous. I like how they tied that in and made it so that there's nothing overlaying it. It's almost if you looked at it, you would think it's just an art piece, and you would never realize that everything here is designed to further the entire mechanic of how the players move. Yeah, that's right. That is a really well-thought-out design there. Now, the the next component I want to mention is the clock. This is a, a large two-part piece of a, a player board, I guess. That's a, it's a It looks like a big clock. Um, think a uh, Hickory Dickory Dock, the mice ran up the clock. 
The board has a few different parts to it. It has a cheese wheel at the top, the where the hands of the clock would be, is a cheese wheel. Now, again, I mentioned er, now the cheese is something that's used in the game a lot for a few different things. There's actual cheese counters in the game. And one of the things you do whenever you make a bad roll in the game, you will put a cheese on the clock. And there's a couple of things that might trigger cheese getting put on the clock. If you fill up the clock with six pieces of cheese, the chapter advances, the story advances to the next chapter which now means those events are just start getting harder. It also triggers for a, a, a boss for that room to come out. Besides that, there's spaces in the, on the board for the different decks. There's a chapter track to keep track of the story. Each This game is played through scenarios, and each scenario, when you read it, will tell you how many chapters are in the story. The, the game ends as a failure if it reaches the end of the book. So there's a, a space to track all the chapters. It's really neat because the counter to track the chapters it looks like a, a scroll. And finally, there's an initiative track. I had mentioned earlier there's small character cards for all the villains. There's also small cards for the player characters. Whenever you start an encounter in a room, you will shuffle up all the cards that are involved in this encounter, the players and the monsters, shuffle them up and deal them out in a line, and that determines your initiative order. And one one thing that's neat about that is that different things can cause that initiative to change, generally speaking, to your detriment. Yeah, like the rats would normally get to move up in initiative order whenever they make an attack. Uh, one other thing, just to mention about the minions, about the mini the mini figures, each of the mouse heroes has a figure, and the game also comes with 16 minis for the minions, which are the enemies that you're going to be facing in the course of this. There are six rats, eight roaches, one centipede, and one spider. All of these are very nicely designed minis. They're very almost realistic, especially if you paint them. Now, my personal copy of this is not painted, or rather when I had a copy of it, um, it's not painted. My copy, unfortunately, went with my brother when he left town. But <laughs> they weren't painted. But even so, some of these figures are just so realistic. I know that we had a game going of Mice and Mystics, and my wife saw the Centipede um, mini come out. And from that point in time, she refused to play a game. The Centipede, the mini of it, almost rears it back and looks and hovers over the characters like a snake poised to, to attack. And having the Centipede just rearing back so creeped out and disgusted my wife that she refused to come anywhere near Mice and Mystics. So I, I personally think it's a plus. I think that the the minions definitely give that sense of impending doom to them, especially like the centipede and the spider. They're very nicely designed. Yeah, actually, my wife was also put off by the, the roach miniatures in this game. It, it didn't stop her from playing, fortunately, but she did dislike them a lot. And that really speaks a lot to the quality of this game. The, the figures look realistic enough and good enough to <laughs> to cause a reaction in the person. Now, this game also brings some custom dice. These are nice etched dice, and they have a couple different symbols. They might have a picture of a crossbow with an arrow. They might have a picture of a shield, a sword, a shield and a sword, or a cheese. Um, you use these in combat. For example, you're shooting an arrow, you roll the dice, or you're shooting a ranged weapon, and you hope to roll arrow faces, or bow and arrow faces. If you do, then those are hits. Your opponent will then roll dice and hope to get shields. If you roll cheese faces, you will get cheese tokens into your supply, and you'll be able to use these to spend uh, for skill points. Now, I'm kind of getting into the explanation of the games already, but 
I think this is the end of the components anyway. The if your opponent does roll cheese, if the NPCs roll cheese, that will add them to the cheese roll, which is a bad thing. The last component I want to mention is the scenario book, which is a, a large book that has eleven, ten or eleven different scenarios in it, and each scenario takes a few pages. There's some flavor text to read in there. That's really good text. Um, it's fun to do it in voice. The kids especially enjoy that. And then it'll tell you how to set up, you know, what tiles to use, whether which side of the tile is facing up, uh, if there's any restrictions on which mice to use, it'll tell you which ones you have to use or even where to place them, and, and that sort of thing. And once you've set all that up, you're ready to start playing the game. And so, so that's it for the components, and that's our segue into the gameplay. So the way the game plays is that each each mouse will get to take a turn when their turn comes up on the initiative track, as will the minions. So the minions act very simply, and they will all work, and they'll just move th- move forward, and then they'll battle. They'll be able to take whatever their move is, and they'll roll the dice to determine what their move is. Um, each one of the dice has a number listed on it. Each one of the fa- faces of the dice have a number listed on it, so it can be one or it can be four. And you'll roll the die for each minion, which will determine how far they get to go. Many of the minions are not going to be able to move all the way up to get to you, especially when an encounter just starts. You'll start an encounter and you'll be able to move straight to the center of the board, while all the other minions will be, have to start from the edges of the board and can sometimes move in. Sometimes they can, sometimes they'll roll high, but very often you'll be able to pick off some of the closer ones and not deal with all of them at once. When they get caught up, so they'll be able to go ahead and, uh, they'll be able to go ahead and attack any min- any mice that are in an, a... Their space or an adjacent space? They'll be able to attack anything that's in an adjacent space. And when they're attacking, they will roll dice, whatever it is that the minion's battle value is. Every time it shows a sword or a shield, a sword or a sword with a shield, so that's one hit. The mice will then get to roll their dice, and they'll possibly be able to block it with shields. If they block it, so then it's gone. If they don't, so they take a wound. The ranged minions work the same way, except that they're cowards. They run, they run away from the mice. Which I always found funny, because the elite rat warriors are the, are the most common ranged minion that you're going to be able to see in the base game, at least. And they are so elite that they run scared and try and hide in the corners. It could be that they're the smart rat warriors or something like that, but they're not very elite. They just run. (laughs) They work that they'll run away and they'll try and shoot you from where it is that they can reach. Often these minions will be able to start up top on tables or on high bookshelves, and sometimes you'll have to use some of your own range attacks to get at them quickly before they'll be able to pick you off while you run up to them. For them, though, their chance to hit is smaller. Some of the die faces show bows, as in a bow and an arrow. If if the die face shows a bow when you're rolling for a ranged attack, so then that will be a hit. And there's less bows than there are swords, so it's harder to hit with a ranged attack. So that's what happens when a minion gets to go. When a mouse gets to go, so they'll be able to do in any order they want. They can do a move, they can do a single standard action, and they can do as many free actions as they want. Now, the move for the mice works the same way, except that for them, they get to add their movement value. All the movements for the minions is basically equivalent to zero, generally. But for the mice, so they automatically get to move a certain amount, plus whatever it is that they roll the move on the move die. For their standard actions, they can either choose to move again, they can battle, 
which works the exact same way as the minions in general. So the, they'll come up and they'll try and attack someone. If they're doing a melee attack, so they'll roll swords. If they're doing a ranged attack, so they'll roll bows. It's very simple to be doing attacks for either the minions or for the mice. You're just rolling, and if you're close up, you're hitting swords. If you're far away, you're rolling shields. Battle in, in this game, the rules for battle, are very simple and very easy to understand. The game, so the next possible action you can take is you can recover. Some of the minions will, especially the, the mini boss minions, will be able to do special effects on you. So in the base game, the special effects are just to be stunned or webbed or charmed. And you can roll to, uh, you can recover and get rid of those effects, but you'll usually take a whole turn to do that where you'll just stand back up. The equivalent of just standing back up, for example. And each one of those is described in the rulebook about how does that work for how they get, how you get rid of them. You can also explore. If you have no more minions left on the mice's, t- on, on, on the group's tile, so then you, ha- you can get over to the exit area and you can either flip the, sp- flip the tile. So each of the tiles is double sided, a top part of the castle and a bottom part of the castle. It will flip the tile over and explore back to the other side. Or you can cross from one side to the other side. Now, because each of the tiles have a top side, a bottom side, you can only cross from a top to a top or a bottom to the bottom. And you can tell if you're on the top or the bottom by whether or not it's a blue or an orange exit square. So only blue to blue or only orange to orange. Often when you explore, you'll also have to do something special on the new tile. Because there's a whole storybook that you're playing through with a number of different stories through it, as you progress through the chapters, special things will usually happen when you cross from tile to tile or when other events happen. So when you cross from tile to tile, you have to check the storybook to see what happens. Now, we're not going to ruin any of this story for you guys, because I think it's a very compelling story, especially if you're playing with younger kids. I know that with them, the part of the goal of the game was really just to enjoy the experience of playing, so I would sort of sometimes fudge the die rolls and make sure that they always managed to progress. So it was really a one-session-per-chapter game. And you would make sure that you move through it just to tell the story. And they loved playing through and actually living the story in addition to hearing me read the story to them. But even for adults, the story is a very well-written story. And very compelling. It definitely drives the narrative of the game and is also tied to events that'll happen throughout each chapter. You don't just read a whole setup story and then read a whole ending story. Different things will happen throughout the course of the chapter. Very different from chapter to chapter. A lot of things are, are change from chapter to chapter. Just, you know, as an example, one time you have a bunch of things exploding that you have to deal with or another time you have rushing water flowing through that you have to make your way out of, or another time you have to play almost a gambling game with a bunch of minions. And these are surprises, and they really make a lot of variation to the different chapters. The last of the standard actions is to search. Like Albert mentioned, there's a whole nice deck of cards that list, that that give you special upgrades to your characters. For example, you have all sorts of different Things like you have a shield, or you have new swords, or new weapons, or new tricks. For searching, this was one of the ones that we found most difficult for for our for us playing it at least. The only way you can search is you roll a die, and if you get at least one star on the die, so that counts as success, and you draw a search card. Now you're only allowed to search once per tile. 
So you either have to bring in some other tokens to remember that you've searched once per tile, or you have to uh, somehow remember, or you just simply have to remember it yourself or something else like that. But you have to ensure that you're only searching once per tile. Otherwise, it's too easy just to level up and get a ton of really cool stuff too fast. Um, and also the, the star as success, the star does successes in, in a lot of the games. So you'll start to identify the star as being success, but the, the star's success for at least younger ones was not intuitively obvious. I'm not quite sure what else they could have done to make it a success, especially since you need to fit it into a smaller space, but it wasn't intuitively obvious. And I found that it had to help with the younger players to ensure that they realized that, oh yeah, you made a success on that one. That was good. I don't know if you had a similar response. Um, no, we didn't have too much trouble with that. We did mess up the rule about only searching once and we searched more. Though we did find that one thing that happens once all four characters have taken their turn, or how many characters there are in that scenario, have taken their turn, you add a, a cheese to the time track. So there is some motivation not to spend too much time searching anyway, even though we were being a little bit free about that. Well, that rule is actually that you only add a, a cheese to the time track if you're in a tile where there's no minions, if there's no minions out right now. So a good strategy to try and get good stuff is, tr is to um, make sure to kill all the big guys first and then leave like one roach there and then continue searching until all of your characters have done a search action and just run away <laughs> from the um, last bad guy and Unfortunately, sometimes you'll roll in defense where you'll kill him accidentally when you're not trying to and you're just trying to hank around until you get all the searches in. But assuming that doesn't happen, you'll have the ability to go ahead and search for multiple times. You'll be able to have the ability to search almost with impunity. You have to be careful, though, because as the minions continue to attack, every time they roll cheese, they put cheese on the cheese wheel. And when the cheese wheel fills up, so the time track to end the game draws closer or or possibly also a boss may come out if no mini bosses come out previously that's right every time the cheese wheel fills up it, it could cause a surge which means more more enemies but you only get one surge per tile if you've already had a surge occur on that tile it won't happen again until you get to the next tile so sometimes you want to hang around a tile and make the surge happen on this tile so that it doesn't surge on the next tile and get your engine okay and, and and so that that's pretty much the the bulk of the gameplay until the game ends, either in success because you accomplish whatever the goal of the mission happens to be, which varies from mission to mission, or or you reach the end of the story because of a another surge happened, or a character dies. No, a character dying, they pass out. They are captured when they're captured. So you're able to re-get them back once you dis destroy or once you eliminate all of the other bad guys on the uh, board. That's right. Okay. But if everybody got captured, that would end the game. The game also comes with a whole set of achievements, which are summarized on the back part of the rulebook. So, for instance, if you get three or more cheese in a turn, so you get Cheese Master, a Roach Master, a Poison Master. And these achievements will give you special bonuses. But one thing that's especially nice, most of these will let you move the chapter end marker one page farther on the end track. And so I know that when you're uh, trying to when you're trying to do a close game and it's a difficult scenario, having one of the characters try and target to get some of these achievements moves the chapter end marker farther along and makes it a lot easier to try and beat the game because now you have a little bit more time to advance. 
in addition to the nice bonuses that these effects give you. So, so what are your thoughts on the game, Julius? Now that we've covered the mechanics. I really like this game. This game has a simple set of rules and is very charming with the characters and the art and the components. The heart tokens are real heart tokens. They, they are, are special tokens for the hearts to keep track of your health. All the, the whole mice theme really comes through in the game where you're playing as mice and you're exploring the insides of this castle and you're going underneath it and interacting with other creatures and the crow. And it really brings together all the theme and all the mechanics come together for a big cohesive unit that really works well together. I especially like the storybook on it. The writing on this is excellent quality. The story helps you really begin to feel like you're living through the adventure. It's not a bland role-playing game where, you know, you just set up a scenario and you play through it and you, you just are trying to achieve it. With this one, the storybook helps each time you play, each chapter you play, behave very differently with a, a different set of rules and expectations and also helps you really live and get even more into the theme. So the whole game is both is very immersive and it's also a excellent rules design because everything is so simple to understand and simple to play. It helps you just live the whole game without having to get a lot of difficulty in how it is that you play the game. It's very easy to play and very easy to immerse yourself in it. Now, yeah, I love the, the, the story of the game a lot too and the components are so amazing. It's a fun game to, to enhance. For example, I went to the craft store and I bought some heart-shaped rhinestones and used them for the hearts. And, and they come in different colors, so I've got red ones for damage and green ones for poison. Um, you could paint your figures if you have painting skills. You could, there's a painting guide on the on the Plaid Hat Games website, and you can buy extra figures if you want. And there's just tons of things you can do to customize it, which is just makes it look even much better. It's, it's already a great-looking game. Now, this game is not for everybody. One thing we should definitely mention is that you cannot play this with a single character. Uh, most of the scenarios require you to take four characters. I think there's one that even has six. So if you're the kind of person that does not like playing multiple characters in an adventure game, unfortunately, this one's not for you. If that doesn't bother you, that it's a great story and a great adventure and a lot of fun. Yeah, also the scenarios typically require you to pick specific characters. You don't have your free choice of which characters that you do. Because of the story, it'll tell you which characters coming into each scenario. That's right. You do have some freedom. But but in some cases, you definitely... It tells you, you have, one of the characters has to be Lily or Colin or whoever. Now, one thing I want to say, my experience was different than your experience in terms of the rules, we found it really confusing, honestly, and, and had trouble figuring out the rules in a few cases. And and we played the game wrong more than one time. However, I found that the story was so nice that it that if we had confusion with the rules, we just played it the way that seemed to carry the story forward as best as we could and enjoyed it that way and did not worry too much about the rules being exactly correct. It, it really is a game where, where the story is so, is that great. Now, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned there's two expansions for this. To the the first expansion, the Heart of Glorm brings a, a new major villain and a new playable character, and a whole book of new encounters. And that expansion is more like a small expansion. Mm-hmm. 
and doesn't have as much to it as their second expansion, Downwood Tales. Downwood Tales comes with a whole new set of tiles, a number of different characters, some new mechanics, a new big bad guy, the a snake that goes around attacking everyone on a tile. And it also comes with, in addition to the flippable tiles, you now have a third layer to the tiles you have up in the trees, as they're now outside of the Downwood, which brings even more dynamism to the game when you both go underneath, go above, and now you're going up into the up into the trees. This one has a lot of different components to it, so it's as a big an expan it's as big an expansion as the original base game, unlike Downwood Tales. Also the game comes with a few just downloadable lost chapters. These you can get straight from the Plathead website. I think they're only a couple bucks. It's just simply something you download and play through. It's a couple different extra things that you could play in between the other chapters. They'll add a little bit to the story, but they, they don't change in a dramatic way or anything like that. Yeah, and those are there's two of those. Those are called Cat's Cradle and the Ghost of Castle Andam. Okay, so I think that's my mystics, unless there's any, any more closing notes you want to say. I don't. Okay, then that's my mystics. So just a, fi- a final items before we close this show. Um, in the last episode of the PMP roundtable, uh, Jake Staines was one of the uh, guests of the roundtable. After the roundtable during the, his game review, I accidentally called him Jack Staines. So sorry about that. If you're trying to find him online on BGG or whatever and you couldn't, it was because his name is actually Jake. Although I think that Staines is probably pretty good. It's S-T-A-I-N-E-S. Yeah. Now, I did send him an email apologizing for it. He said, oh, don't worry about it. As a matter of fact, uh, Jack is an older form of the word name Jake, so you're still good, just a little bit outdated. That's oh. right, Albert. I would definitely <laughs> put you in that category. Old-fashioned. That's me. The And one last item. Um, I have never really talked about requesting feedback or anything on the podcast, but I, I was noticing, I, I happened to see uh, iTunes, that there is some feedback on iTunes for this podcast. And it's all pretty old at this point. I think it's, they're all probably from like the first six months of the show. Um, so if you're inclined to give feedback on the podcast, it might be useful to any new listeners to get an idea what the show is like today. It is much different than those original shows, no doubt. All right. So that's a podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, and see you in a couple of weeks. Have a squeaky day. <laughs> squeaky day. <laughs> I like that. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DonPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.